Let's move to our scripture that can be found on the back of the bulletin. This is John 17, 1 through 5. Jesus is about to be arrested, or he's heading toward Gethsemane, and uh, he pauses to pray. And this is the first part of this prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The word of the Lord. Well, what we see determines how we live. Right? Perspective is so important in life. Two people look at the same thing, but see very differently. Think of all of the hot button issues in our world. Think of things like racism. Two people look at someone of a different race. One person sees a person, and the other sees an object of disdain. I know the reality because of my name, Carlos Rodriguez, that people form impressions of me before they've even met me based on their past experiences, their past prejudices. Two people look at the same thing and see very differently. Politics, for instance, some people with an opposing political party, some people see people who disagree and others see the enemy. What about God? What's your perspective when you see God? See some sort of impersonal force that's up there in the world. Maybe that's your impression, your perspective of him. Or he's a frail old man, kind of like Father Time, who really has no relevance in this world. Or maybe when you see God, you see glory, the glorious and majestic God, the creator of the universe. See, the key to living life correctly is to see correctly. And when we see God in all of his glory, it changes everything. See these stories in the past in the Bible of people that saw God, like Isaiah and like Moses and how they were transformed. But we have to ask the question, what about us? We're just ordinary people. See, the amazing thing about the gospel is why Jesus came to us, to you and me, is to reveal the glory of God. And in Christ, we can see him in all of his fullness and all of his majesty. And the reason why Jesus reveals to us the glory of God is because he wants us to know him as he truly is. See, Jesus gave everything that you might know him. So we must give everything that we might know him. We're going to look at three points today. We're going to look at, number one, the glory that Jesus has. Number two, we're going to look at the eternal life that Jesus gives. And then finally, we're going to look at point number three, the glory that we give. So let's look at this first point, the glory that Jesus has. See, in verse 1, Jesus had spoken these words. He lifted his eyes to heaven after he'd spoken these words. Jesus has been speaking to his disciples as they walk toward Gethsemane. 
He's been talking about the fact that he is the vine and they are the branches. That Jesus is going to send, ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit who's going to lead them and teach them everything. That he is going to be taken away from them and that he's going to come back to them. And after he's said all of these things, he stops and he prays. Some people have called this the Jesus' high priestly prayer. And there's a reason why it's called that. See, uh, many of us who are familiar with the religion of uh, the Jews, in the past there, there was a high priest, right, who would go into the sanctuary once a year to offer sacrifices for the sins of the people. And before that priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would pray. And he would actually pray three things. The first is he would pray for himself and his ministry. And then he would pray for his immediate family. And then he would pray for the nation. He would pray for the people of God. And it's very interesting that this prayer that Jesus prays is exactly like that. He prays for himself, then for his disciples, and then for the church. And so we see Jesus is going into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice. But this sacrifice is himself. Jesus is the great high priest. And so he prays for himself. That's what we're looking at uh, this week, and then we will look at those other things. And he lets us overhear. That's what's amazing. He lets the disciples and us overhear. So let's see what Jesus prays as he prays for himself. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. First, Jesus says that the hour has come. And we know what that means because Jesus has been referring to the fact that his hour has not yet come, but that it is coming. And the hour has now come. This is the hour of his crucifixion. It's time for him to go to the cross and to be sacrificed. And so before he does that, in fact, because he is doing that, he prays, glorify your son. It's a very strange and interesting prayer. Why does Jesus ask right here and then to glorify your son? Well, we know what glory is, right? Go, bestow honor, bestow uh, glory. Uh, literally, it means clothing in splendor. Jesus says, clothe me, Father, in splendor. Why is Jesus praying this now? See, we have to understand that Jesus' glory has been veiled, hasn't it? When he came into the earth, he did not come as a king. He did not come in all of its splendor, in all of his glory, but he came born to poor parents in a stable and grew up with a pretty much anonymous life. It's in the incarnation when Christ came that no one knew that here was the God who had created the universe. Philippians 2 tells us that though he was God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He didn't divest himself of his godhood, but he divested himself of his glory. 
Now, to be sure, through his ministry, the disciples received glimpses of his glory, didn't they? Like when they were on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus wakes up in the midst of this giant storm and says, Hush, be still, water. And everything was calm. And they saw his power and his majesty. Or when he went up on the mountain with uh, James and John, and he was transfigured before them, and they saw his beauty and his majesty. But by and large, his glory has been veiled. But now Jesus is saying to the Father, Father, show me to the world in all of my fullness, in all of my splendor. Now, why is Jesus asking now for God to do this? The answer comes in the next verse. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. You see, Jesus has been given a mission to accomplish by his father. To give eternal life to those who the father has given him. It's why he came. And in order to do that, he needs the father to glorify him. But God does not do another transfiguration to the son right then, does he? Jesus will then go on to be arrested, tortured, and crucified. So how does God answer Jesus' prayer to glorify him and to clothe him with splendor and majesty? The answer is by revealing to his people the glory of his love and his sacrifice. See, before the cross, we know God as creator, mighty and majestic. But in the cross, we see the wonder of God and the beauty of God as rescuer and redeemer. See, Jesus is saying to the Father, enable those you have given me to see who I truly am as they look at what I do and why I do it on the cross. And God the Father answers that prayer because Jesus is known and recognized through his cross. It was Jesus that said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all kinds of people to myself. I think that's called double entendre, isn't it? When I am lifted up, we think of being lifted up as exalted. And Jesus is talking about being lifted up on the cross. His exaltation is in his sacrifice. Think about after the cross. When Jesus appears to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they don't recognize him until he sits with them. And he breaks bread with them. Why is it that they recognize him then? I think it's because they saw his hands, which still had the holes in them, right? Jesus then appears to the disciples in the upper room, and what does he say to them? Touch my hands and feet. Feel my side. Now, Jesus has a glorified body, right? Why would he elect to keep these signs of torture on his body? Because they reveal who he is. 
You see, you cannot separate Christ's exaltation from his crucifixion. I like the quote of Robert Murray McShane in the bulletin, that the wounds of Christ were the greatest outlets of his glory that ever were. The divine glory shone more out of his wounds than out of all of his life before. Many people try to separate Jesus from his cross, make him into a good teacher or a good example for him to follow, but Christ will have nothing of it. In fact, what is the most recognizable symbol on the entire planet? It's the cross. It's the cross. But it's interesting, you know, not all see Jesus, do they? Remember, Jesus is saying that his purpose was to give eternal life to those you have given me. And so when those who have been given to Christ see the cross, they see Christ in his fullness. But others, when they look at the cross, they only see foolishness. It was 2 Corinthians 4, 3, 6, uh, where Paul says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And God sees the glory of Christ. He exalts him through the cross. And after his death, he raises him and gives him the name above every other name that every knee should bow and recognize that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And that is what all will do at the end. So the question I have for you today is this. What do you see when you see the cross of Christ? I was reminded recently, uh, uh, what came to memory was, uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Les Miserables, however you pronounce it. And uh, there's Jean Valjean, who's this big man, right, who's been sentenced and he's been in prison under uh, Javert for uh, decades and he's let out and he goes to the, uh, the, the abbey or the house of this old wizened priest who's the only one who will take him in. And at night, while he, uh, everyone is sleeping, he steals the silver, all the artifacts, the, the, uh, the bowls and the pitchers and things like that. And when the old priest comes down and says, who is that? And he sees uh, Valjean. Valjean uh, punches him and knocks him out, this big guy and this old man. Well, Valjean is captured the next day, and he's brought back by the French uh, to the priest who fully expect him to, to finger him as a criminal. But the, the priest says to him, I'm so glad that you came back. Why did you forget to take the candlesticks? They can fetch 2,000 francs apiece, and he gives them the candlesticks. And the, and the uh, police have no choice but to, uh, you know, take off the shackles and go away. And as Jean Valjean sits there, who... And his only experience has been of the cruel world in which he's been in for so many decades where it's, you know, the eat or be eaten. And he stares into the eyes of this priest. The priest says to him, I have ransomed you from evil and I give you back to God. Through the actions of this priest, he's freed and liberated because he sees the beauty of God and he turns to him. 
See, that's the gospel, and that's what Jesus did for you and me on the cross. The scriptures say, you see, just at the right time while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might dare to possibly die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what do you see when you look at Jesus? A good example to follow? An irrelevant figure? Or do you see his glory? See, we must see him in his glory if we're going to see him at all. We must stare deeply into the cross. Because the cross is a window into the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ. No one has ever loved you like Jesus did. And so you and I must respond like God did by placing him in his proper place. Above all powers, above all interests, above all the trinkets of the world. Putting him first on the throne of your heart. Because he gave everything that you might know him. So we must give everything that we might know him. Well, that's the glory that Jesus Christ has. Let's talk about the eternal life that Jesus gives. God gave Jesus authority to give eternal life to those the Father has given him. But what really is eternal life anyways? Many of us think of eternal life as eternal living continuing on our existence in this world, kind of like Groundhog Day, right? Around and around. And I have to say, no, thank you. That doesn't sound to me to be eternal life. Or rather, we think of eternal life as having everything that I could ever want. Everything that will really make us happy. Imagine that I had the power to give you the ability to fly. And that would be amazing for about a month. And then in about a month, it would be a, yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's great. What next? I appreciate the quote of Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was a, at one time a waiter who used to carry around a check for $20 million in his wallet, saying one day somebody's going to pay me $20 million to do a movie for them. And it came true. And Jim Carrey said, after experiencing all that life had to offer, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Jesus defines for us right here, and this is eternal life. This is what it's all about. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Right there, you have the answer to what the purpose of life is. To know the Father and to know his son, Jesus. And when Jesus says no, he's not saying to know about Jesus and the Father. Satan knows a whole lot about Jesus and the Father. No, he's talking about knowing him relationally and personally. More accurate translation would actually be to be knowing 
It's an ongoing relationship. I mean, it makes perfect sense when you think about it, right? We were made to know and be known. We were brought into this world in the context of relationship, right? A mother, a father, a family. God at his very core is relational. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you and I were designed in the image of God so that we could know God. The Bible uses the word know to actually describe the deepest and most personal relationship. In Genesis 4.1, Adam and Eve, God brought them together. And what does it say? Adam knew his wife and they bore Cain. He's talking about sex. And sex is not a dirty word. Sex is something that God made. It was something all of us were made through. I'm a big fan. Here's why sex is so beautiful. Because it's personal, it's intimate, and it's unguarded. Where you literally become one with the other person. But it's designed to be only in the context of a lifelong committed relationship. See, imagine this. It's the joining of bodies together. And it's something that's meant to be forever. It's so powerful that when you have joined them together, their hearts are joined together. When you try to separate them, it causes a tremendous amount of pain and suffering. See, we were made to know God in this way, but even deeper. Another illustration I like to use, think of your soul like a glove. And there's only one thing that fits in this glove, right? It's a hand. Fits my hand perfectly. It's the right size for it. Now, I can go throughout my time trying to find that which is going to fit this glove so it's perfect. And I can go throughout the entire world looking for things that will fill this glove, but only one will fit it. Only one will fill it. See, but because of sin, God who is perfect will not join himself to one who is sinful. The Bible says that your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear or see you. But this is why Jesus Christ came. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And so when Jesus got up on that cross, you, if you are his child, were on his mind. And your sins were on his shoulder. Jesus made us right with God so we could be in right relationship with God. And the result of that is no barrier. That you and I can know him, the Father, as the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. See, that's the reason why the Father glorified the Son, so we could know him 
as he actually is. When I first met Lee Ellen in college, I didn't realize who she was or who she'd come to be. My constant companion, friend, and confidant for the next 28 years. My knowledge of her in the beginning was shallow. So how did we get to know each other? We began to live life together, to talk, to do things together, to share. And as we've walked through this life together, I now know her in a way that I did not know her then. And that's a relationship, right? That's the way things work. If you are a Christian, God has come near. And the Father and the Son dwell in your heart through the Holy Spirit. He wants to be known. Look at what lengths he went through. The question is, do you want to know him? See, if you are a Christian, at some point you saw him in his glory. You recognized him on the cross and you gave your heart to him and started a relationship with him. But a relationship needs nurture, prioritization. Imagine if after the wedding that I had with Liel and I said, that was fantastic. I will see you in a month and we can talk about it. No, it's our responsibility to nurture and protect the things that we enjoy. So what is your joy and your heart's delight? What's eternal life for you? See, Satan cannot take away your salvation if you are a Christian. But he can do his best to take away the joy of your salvation. Do you continue to spend your days going throughout your schedule trying to find the right fit for this glove? Believing the lies of the world. Or are you seeking the God who wants to know you and be known? In prayer, you and I can come to the Father and the Son and share your heart and him share his heart back with us. Throughout the day, you can walk in communion with him. You can take Jesus into your workplace, into the home, into your car. We live in a world of noise. But Jesus himself went to lonely places and prayed. And you and I have to do the same if we seek to know the one who is eternal life. I think the favorite part of my day is waking up, making my smoothie, and going and sitting in my treehouse, looking out at the forest and spending time listening for the whisper of God. He is available to all who seek to know him. But he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. That is eternal life. The eternal life that Jesus gives. This brings me to my final point, the glory that we give. Look at what Jesus says in verse 1. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. See, Jesus has one overarching purpose in the end 
that he might glorify the Father back. That's what love is like, isn't it? Remember being in love for the first time? And you're constantly thinking of the other person. You want to do things for them that make them feel honored and special. And they experience that and in turn respond by wanting to do the same thing for you. See, that's the kind of relationship that the Father and the Son have had from eternity. And God invites us into that kind of relationship with him. See, we were not made for ourselves. We were made for him. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Jesus came not only to free us from sin, he came to free us from ourselves. And you will experience the most joy and happiness in this life when you're seeking to glorify the Father and the Son. So examine your life. Am I living to make his name famous? To show my love for him, to please him? When I go to work, am I working to honor him? When I'm relating to my kids and my spouse, is it to make his name famous? In my thoughts and my leisure time, is it I want to live for the glory of God? It's what you were made for. If you're not living that way, I challenge you that maybe the issue is, I don't know him. Not like the way I need to. Because to know him is to love him. Beloved, 1 John says, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The solution, my friends, is not to try harder. The solution is to pray. Jesus, I need to know you. I want to know you. Deeper. I want to know you in the fullness. Because what the world needs is people who are head over heels in love with Jesus. So reorient your life to seek to know Jesus and the Father. Make this your highest calling and desire. Because he gave everything that you might know him. So give everything that you might know him. Let's pray. Jesus, we do see you in all of your glory when we look at the cross. And you have brought us near to yourself and to the Heavenly Father through your Holy Spirit. God, let us not settle for the trinkets of this life, but for the one thing that fits the glove, being in deep, intimate, personal relationship with you. Let this be our prayer and our highest aim, and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.